Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We resumed our study of the pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul, primarily focusing on 1 Timothy, but bringing in the parallel passages from 2 Timothy and from Titus, as well as uh, much from his other letters to the churches. And uh, this resumption of our study brings us to the chapter and the discussion regarding the order in the church. And last week we talked about the challenge that we face between an ordered ministry within the church, on the one hand, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, on the other, the every member ministry that we read about in Paul's letters. This evening we're going to look at um, verses 1 through 7. I'd like to read that passage and ask Malcolm if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning, or this evening, excuse me. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do call upon you, Lord, to be with us this evening as we study your word. We pray for our pastor as he stands before us. We ask that you would uh, give him free unction to uh, expound upon the scriptures and uh, clearly that we might hear and learn and understand and learn more of your word that we might live lives that are more pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First seven verses of First Timothy chapter three lay out what we call the requirements for the office of a bishop, an overseer. Paul writes, "It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach." not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, this is considered by many to be the, the requirements of, an, of a deacon, of, of an elder, excuse me, or of a bishop. But in fact, they are really a description of what we all aspire to be in Christ. They're really simply a description of a man in whom the Holy Spirit is working and who lives in obedience to the laws and statutes of God. It doesn't, of course, give those who are not overseers the justification to be addicted to wine or to be pungnacious or to be intemperate. No, we are all called to, to live lives that are worthy of the name Jesus Christ. So I think the concept of them being requirements for an elder uh, is really a misnomer. It's kind of a misdirection. Uh, these are maybe perhaps more of a, a checklist against which we will 
judge the life of a man who's being considered for the office of overseer. Last week we looked at this concept of, of a bishop or bishops, deacons in the church, and I quoted one commentator who, who comments that in the, the churches of the Pauline tradition, that's the phrase that this particular scholar uses, the churches in the Pauline tradition all had this form of structure within them. And I noted last week that as far as the scriptures are concerned, we have no other tradition. All other traditions that we find in churches today were developed within the history of Christianity by the church itself and really by the men of the church. Not by the scriptures. The Pauline tradition of church government is, is the only one we have from the Bible, from the New Testament. So I think it is a good opportunity, this passage, for us to review the polity of Fellowship Bible Church, the, the way we do church with, in regard to our elders, and to look at what Paul has to say concerning the various terms that we read that are often separated from one another and taken on their own. For example, we have here the word episkopos in verse 1 and verse 2, translated in the New American Standard as overseer, but it is also the word from which we get bishop and the Episcopal Church, which is ruled by bishops. So the, the idea of a church in which bishops are the ruling officers comes from this word, episkopos. There's also the word elder in Paul's letters, and that word is presbyteros, from which, of course, we get the word Presbyterian. And Presbyterian churches are governed by a presbytery, which is an assembly of elders. Now, we'll see later in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, where Paul seems to make a distinction between elders, from which the Presbyterian church has teaching elders and ruling elders. Now, those teaching elders are also called pastors. Baptist churches tend to have pastors. In fact, in many uh, Baptist churches, pastor becomes that man's common name. He loses the name that he was given at birth, and he becomes simply pastor. Uh, we saw that uh, last weekend at a wedding where somebody referred to the pastor as simply pastor. Uh, that hasn't happened to me, which is good because I wouldn't answer. Uh, so, but often churches will use pastor and the person's name. So the idea of a pastor is, is very prevalent, especially in Baptist churches. That word comes from uh, the word poineo, which is flock or shepherd. And that is what a pastor is supposed to do, is to shepherd the flock. So we have these three words that are used um, differently in Christian churches in our experience, bishop, elder, pastor. Back in 1992, the Fellowship Bible Church found itself without elders or a pastor. And one of the first things that the congregation did was to ask five men to be elders in the church. And at the same time, the congregation also formed a pastor search committee. And we're talking about some of this in our Sunday School Discovery class, so if you, if you attend that, you'll learn a little bit about our history. Now, the elders at that time went on a, pastor, on a pastor study retreat, and the presupposition with which they 
went off for the weekend to study the scriptures, was this idea that we would find a pastor, we would call, and that's the word that's used. And back then it was, in fact, a telephone call. Now it's usually an email. So, but uh, the call, the idea of a call that a congregation makes to a man to come to be the pastor of that church. And that's really the traditional way that people, if you're not in an Episcopal church, or perhaps Methodist or Lutheran, where the pastor is often determined for you by the synod, Congregationalist-type churches like ours, generally when they find themselves without a pastor, they put out a search, they get resumes, they have people come and, and speak, and then they make a selection and they, they issue a call. The conclusion of that study, however, was vastly different. The conclusion was that elders are pastors. And at the time, that conclusion was not universally accepted. And that is an understatement. Because we are very much ingrained with the idea that in order for a church to thrive and to grow, we need to bring in somebody, and, and I, I've often frequently referred to it as the professional holy man. That, that we in the pews are not qualified, we have not been called to pastor, and, and therefore we need to bring in somebody who knows what he's doing. And that really is the mentality of the vast majority of churches that you and I have had any experience with over the years. Now, I want to try to lay out the rationale because over the past, what is that, 26 years, there has been no evidence either from Scripture or the life of the church that the conclusions reached by the elders at that time was incorrect. But rather, I think if we look at what happens in many other churches as they call and, and, and then lose pastors, and the, the detriment that that is to the actual pastoral shepherding ministry of God's people, I've just been ever more convinced that it was the right move, even though um, no one else seems to be following it okay, that I know of. So let's look at some of the nouns and verbs that Paul uses with regard to leadership in the church. First, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, episkopos. The word literally means one who sees over. Epi is a preposition meaning over or above and, and it is attached to the verb watching or to see and it has the idea of an overseer. Someone who is, is looking over the church of God and making sure everything is going okay. It's not actually the same word that we see in the Bible as steward and that word is more powerful, actually. A steward, as we learn in the life of Joseph, for example, is really the second only to the Lord of the manor. It's an authoritative. The word is oikonomos, which means the, the law of the house. And the steward is one who really becomes, under the master of the house, he becomes the law, so that Joseph became steward in Potiphar's house, and then later he was second only to Pharaoh in the land. Now that's a, that's a powerful, authoritative. Paul actually uses that term of himself, but not here. Now, the words are somewhat synonymous, but I want to just make the distinction that the, the episkopos, the episkopoi, are men who are not really authoritative. They're not the law of the church. In fact, I read 
in verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, well, the word office is not actually in the Greek. It's supplied there because, well, it, it is a distinct ministry within the church. And for us, we tend to think of that as an official ministry. But I want to try to point out that, that that's not really what an episcopos is. Not really a, a, a steward as he is an overseer. The second word that is frequently used in Paul's letters is presbyteros, translated elder. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, we read that Titus was left in Crete in order to set things in order and to appoint elders in every city. Now those are generally viewed as synonymous, setting things in order and appointing elders was one action. The elders were, were part of the setting in order. And, and I think that we can recognize um, the idea of an elder. It's a person whom age and wisdom has made qualified to govern. Now, we're not usually, you know, we tend to think of, when you think of churches, you think of the bishop, of course, as being the, the governor. Of course, he wears the fancy robes and the hat, and elders are usually considered to be no, but the word doesn't work that way. The elders are traditionally a council who rule alongside the monarch. Those are the elders. For example, we read in, uh, in Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law gives him some advice that he does follow and God does bless. Jethro says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, Men who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them, the people. Well, that sounds a whole lot like what we're reading here in 1 Timothy. Later on in Exodus chapter 24, Then Moses went up the mountain with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel. The elders of Israel. These were the men who were chosen to govern, and we read that, that, that most of the judicial cases of the land went to the elders, and only the most difficult ones went to Moses. So in, in spite of our experience in the history of the church, the term elder actually has a higher authoritative meaning than the bishop. Okay? We tend to think of... of um, Things reversed from what the words actually mean in their historical context. So if we're going to say, okay, what is the, uh, the, the top dog of, of these terms? We'd have to say it's the presbyteros, not the episkopos. It's the elder, not the bishop. But I hope to show you that in Paul, these words are actually synonymous. They're actually referring to the same man. Okay? The third word is poimenein, which means to shepherd. Now, I've given you two nouns, and now I just gave you a verb, or actually an infinitive. Because the word pastor, in terms of church government, is almost universally in the verb form. It's not a noun. Where it is a noun in the Bible, it is either talking about the shepherds who watch their flocks by night, or the one place in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul refers to the apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Those two words, pastor and teacher, being joined together as, 
as like a fourth category that, that he speaks of regarding Christ's gifts to the church. The idea of the pastor, of course, is someone who will, who will shepherd the flock. And the idea of a teacher is one who will teach God's Word to the people of God. It may be that there was a time that pastors and teachers were actually different, but I, I tend to think not. Because the overwhelming counsel of Scripture is that God's people are shepherded when they are taught God's Word. That there really isn't two separate things going on. One is, 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 is what's being done and the other is how it's being done. The shepherding of the flock is guiding the people into safety, into good pasture and still water. And all of that is, is metaphorical for teaching them the Word of God, the will of God. So it's reasonable, when we look at these words, it's reasonable to come up with a, with a model of a, of a bishop who rules with a council of elders. And actually that's what happened very early on in the Christian church. By the second century we will read Ignatius talking about the single bishop who was in charge of a local church within a city. As time went on, that bishop would aggregate to himself more and more power until he had a diocese, meaning he would be over a number of churches in a region. And individual cities where he lived, like Antioch, they would become Episcopal sees. They would have authority over the other churches. Jerusalem would be one, Alexandria and Egypt would be another, Ephesus would be one, Smyrna was a very famous one. Finally, the biggest of all, of course, was Rome. The Bishop of Rome would then aggregate to himself or arrogate to himself the, the honor of the Pope. And that's the development that this took. But this is contrary to what um, Paul writes in his letters. And it's also, it basically has led in the church in its various forms to the leadership of the church lording it over the flock of God. The very thing that Peter, referring to himself as a fellow elder, exhorts the elders of the church not to do when he tells them to shepherd the flock, not lording it over. And so we saw last week that, that what, whatever form of government a church has must do one or do two things. First, it must shepherd the flock. It, it must be conducive to a shepherding pastoral ministry within Christ's church. And second, it must be guarded itself against lording it over. And I think, as we saw last week, and as we've seen so many times in history, when power is distilled into fewer and fewer hands, it becomes more and more tyrannical. And so that's something that must be avoided if the church is to remain healthy. So, our experience in our own lives and in the history of the church needs to be contrasted with Paul's writings. Our common experience fits with the nouns. We can justify an Episcopal church. We can justify a Presbyterian church. We can justify a pastoral staff. In other words, we can take the words and we can say, hey, this is what we're doing with those words. My contention is that we're not doing with those words what Paul does with them. And therefore, we're not doing with those words what the Holy Spirit desires to be done with them and with the ministry that they represent. 
For the elders back in 1992 and ever since, the key passage, if you'd like to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. It's not the only passage, and we'll be looking at others, but in Acts chapter 20, we see a very significant episode in the life of the Apostle Paul where he is heading back to Jerusalem and um, knows that he will not see many of the people in the churches that he had started. And one in particular that was dear to his heart was Ephesus. We know that it was dear to his heart. He spent many years there, but also because that's where he left Timothy. So Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter to him. So there's a connection there. But we read in verse 17 in Acts chapter 20, Paul, and we read, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. That is, presbyteroi, elders. Notice it's plural. It's not singular. Further down, he talks, you know, he talks about what's going to happen. He goes over his life with them and how he was with, with them. Uh, verse 31, uh, for a period of three years, night and day, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears. But back in verse 28, he gives a charge to the elders at Ephesus that I think should become a governing philosophy for every church of Jesus Christ. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. That's the noun form, by the way, of the verb to pastor. For all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Well, that's episcopoi. The elders have been made by God, the Holy Spirit, overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There are the three words, the two nouns and the verb in one application. And we see it in other places as well. The elders were called to Paul. He admonishes them as elders to, to oversee shepherding the flock of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, we, we see that there was no bishop of Ephesus at this time. Within a hundred years, there will be a bishop of Ephesus, but not in Paul's day. He doesn't call for the bishop of Ephesus to come. He calls for the elders. And he wasn't going over or under the bishop's head when he did so. There was no bishop. In fact, he goes on to say to these elders, God has made you bishops in the church at Ephesus. This was their function, to oversee, literally to watch over not only themselves, but also the flock of God. And he throws in there that phrase that makes it so incredibly serious which he purchased with his own blood. Now some of your translations might say with the blood of his son. That was actually a later addition to try to help explain. But Paul actually says with his own blood because he fully considered Jesus to be Almighty God. Okay, so he says this is the church that God purchased and how are you to do this function of overseeing? By shepherding. And all that that brings to our mind of caring for Providing for, nourishing, protecting, growing the flock. That word shepherd uh, is used frequently in the Old Testament prophets to describe that which Israel most needed. 
shepherds, not priests. You know, you read in Ezekiel, God doesn't say, oh, I'm, going to re I'm going to raise up more priests because that's what you need is more priests. No, I'm going to raise up shepherds. Shepherds like David, who was a man after God's own heart, who was, of course, a shepherd. And so that idea of shepherding. So the first two terms that we read are, are somewhat interchangeable. First Timothy chapter 3, we read the word episkopos, bishop. But in Titus chapter 1, we re read the word elder. These nouns, however, um, are somewhat distinct in that one of them describes what the men were and the other describes what they were supposed to do. The elder was what they were. The bishop was what they were supposed to do. And how they were supposed to do it was to pastor. They, they all go together. They're not separate, distinct leaders or leadership structures. And, and I can't help but think that, that if we had followed the Pauline tradition, if we followed the way that Paul lays it out in the churches among the Gentiles that he created by God's grace, we wouldn't have so many different denominations. Now, I'm sure there are other things that make us differ. There's no doubt. But as far as our polity, our differences, they don't matter so much what we call the men. That's not where the difference lies. What matters is their responsibility within the church, as well as their relationship to both the church and to the church's master, Jesus Christ. So, I mean, we have churches where they're called deacons, but they really function as elders. But they function as elders in the sense of stewards and not in the sense of pastors. So it's like we've taken these words and we've mucked them all up so that we, we have the right words and we can go to the Bible and say, no, 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 but bishop, bishop. But no, you're not using it the right way. Okay, you're playing chess and you're making the bishop jump over one and, and up two. No, that, that's not the way to use the bishop. There is no elder on the chessboard, I guess, just, just a king. <laughs> Sometimes I think the pastors are just little guys in the front. But we're using them the wrong way, and yet we're using the Bible to say that we're doing it the right way. But, you know, it's the whole counsel of Scripture. That's what Paul says to the elders of Ephesus. I did not shrink back from giving to you the whole counsel of Scripture. And so we're looking at the, the whole broad use of these terms. And we understand that the elder is the bishop. The elders are the bishops. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul greets, he says, Paul to all the saints who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. In fact, there's nowhere in the New Testament that we find the word episkopos, singular. It's always plural. The idea of a monarchical bishop comes in in the second century. It comes in as a pattern just like the Israelites were in, in the days of Samuel. We will have a king to be like the other nations around us. Well, we, will, we, are, we are a religious sect. We will have a high priest. We will have a bishop. We will have one man who will fight for us, who will write for us, who will speak for us. Many churches are exactly like that. They want to live their life vicariously through another man whether he be called the senior pastor or the priest, whatever he may be called, it is not a biblical model. 
and it leads to tyranny. It is contrary to that other vital characteristic of the life of the Christian church, and that is the contribution of every single member by the gifts given by the Holy Spirit. These are not two different models of the church, one being a hierarchical model, the other being a level model. And that's how it's become. You know, you have, oh, you have these churches that have a rigid liturgy and structure. You know, you got, you got your Baptists and your Presbyterians and your Anglicans. And down here you have the Charismatics and the, and the Pentecostals. We've made a distinction where in the Bible there is no distinction. And frankly, if, if I had to choose between a church with the ministry of the Holy Spirit running free as He sees fit, or a ministry where you have an ordered polity and a book of church order and everything is done decently in an order, I'm going to choose that one. Because that's the Holy Spirit. This is just some guy who got ordained by other guys. You know, this is just some guy who went to seminary and got a degree. He's not the Holy Spirit. And I'm still reading Paul and he seems to be saying both. Over here he's setting elders to set in order, but over here he's saying how the Spirit distributes to everyone severally just as he wills for the building up of the body. I want them both. And, and Paul does that. He takes one passage in Acts chapter 20 where he's talking to the elders and he's saying, I want you to watch over the flock. I want you to shepherd the flock because God bought it with his blood. Take care of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, he's talking about how important it is that the Holy Spirit be allowed to direct the ministry of the church. But then in Ephesians chapter 4, he puts it together. And he talks about the, the officers, the, the men whom God, Jesus Christ, has gifted to the church, one of which being the pastors. But then he says it's for the building up of the whole body by what every joint and ligament provides. Every single member, every single child of God through Jesus Christ is responsible by the grace of the Holy Spirit to contribute to the life of the body of Christ. He does bring them together. He doesn't set them as two different models, one charismatic, the other high church. And that's the church I think we, we aspire to be, is one where we do have order. We do have shepherds. But those shepherds are not so high and mighty that the Holy Spirit cannot work through individuals within the church. We don't necessarily know all that that looks like. And there have been errors. There have been errors of commission and errors of omission. There have been times when spirits other than the Holy Spirit have been allowed to work within Jesus' church. And there have been times where the Holy Spirit has been quenched. But that doesn't mean that what Paul writes is not the way to go. The Holy Spirit guiding each one of us to provide according to the gifts that he gives us. And by the way, if you want to talk about those gifts more, we'll be talking about them in our Thursday night class as we talk about the church. And I invite you to attend there. But going back to Acts chapter 20, as we close this evening, how does all this come about? How do you... How do you at least have an environment within a local body of believers where the order that is brought about by officers can coexist with the free reign of the Holy Spirit among believers? I think that's the best we can do. We can't, 
We're not going to make the Holy Spirit do things, but we can certainly quench Him. Paul tells us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And yet by our polity, by our church government and our organization, we often quench the Holy Spirit without even knowing it. And I think one of the ways, in fact, for me, the major way that we do that is by misunderstanding the source of church leadership. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that God, he says, um, let me read it directly. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Two very subtle prepositions that mean everything. Among which, and we see that in Titus. When Paul leaves them, he says, set in order all things and appoint elders in every city. He doesn't say appoint elders for every city. Titus didn't travel with a group of men that he deposited upon churches. Okay? These were men from among the churches in Crete. And, and that is such a vital distinction because when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read a list of characteristics that we could only know if we know the men. I mean, if you read this, these are not things people put on their resume. Oh, I'm temperate. <laughs> I'm good with kids. You know, these, what do you see when you see a pastoral resume? You see their, their academic history, and you see what churches they have pastored, and hope, you know, and they always say, well, this, this, this congregation grew from 20 people to 200 people while I was there. I mean, they're really disgusting documents when you think about it. But there, there's nothing, you know, if you, if you were desiring to pastor a church, you would first of all have a picture of your wife. <laughs> this is just my only wife. <laughs> and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. Um, how many glasses of wine you have per week. Your checkbook. A testimonial from your neighbors. You know, these are things that you'd have on your resume. But this is, not what, this is not what the church sees on their pastoral search committee. They don't even ask. How could you know any of these things unless you've known the man for years? How can there be any other way of going about it unless you know the men who among you, who you set the Holy Spirit through the congregation, sets as overseers? I, to me, it's just, I don't know, it's so weird because it seems so obvious. If we're going to follow Paul's writings and his instructions, then we have to know the men whom we call to be pastors, whom we call to be deacons. We need to know their children. You know, I've never seen a pastoral resume where the pastor says, my children are a mess, they are so wild. You're going to want to, do you have a room we can just lock them in when I come? No, they, you know, I'm, you know my kids are great. It really is, it's ridiculous. And, and I can't help believe that all churches would be far better off and believers would be far better nourished, far better strengthened, far better cared for if Paul's pattern of ministry 
were followed today. Let us pray. Father, your word is, is so wonderful to us. It is really the light unto our feet, the, the lamp that guides our path. We pray that you would give us wisdom to follow that path. We pray, Father, that, that you would uh, enable us to resist the traditions of men and rather cling with white knuckles to the guidance of your word. We pray, Father, that you would guide this congregation through the years, that each one of us would be looking within us, among us, for men whom the Holy Spirit has set out to be overseers, to pastor this flock. And Father, we pray that for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, that all churches would see the error of bringing in men from without and refusing to understand that you are raising up and gifting men from within to shepherd your flock, the flock that you purchased with your own blood. We pray that you would continue to guide and bless. We thank you for your word and for the word of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, please stand this evening to receive the benediction <clears throat> from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.